Curvies. Welcome to episode 72. I'm Mary Scott Hunter here today with my co-hosts, Rachel Briers and Liz Bashirs. It's book club day and we hope you enjoyed reading Wonder Girl, The Magnificent Sporting Life of Babe Didrikson Zaharias. Before we get into our show, a, a quick announcement or two. Our season break is coming up and Bell Curve will be taking July and August off and we'll be back with you in September. Curvies, it is so important to recharge. A lot of you just go all the time. And for some of you, it's hard to imagine slowing down. We hope you take this summer to do some things you love, make some memories, recharge. And for those of you working full-time, consider taking something off the to-do list or maybe postponing something that can wait. As Rachel, Liz, and I talked about our goals, we all sensed a need to slow down for a time, not forever, just a time. If you feel, if you're feeling that way too, give yourself permission, just like we did. Rachel, would you please put in a word for our sponsor, Higher Echelon? Sure. So if your organization uses Salesforce, if you use Salesforce, you have probably realized how awesome it is. But it can be complicated to figure out how to use and how to unlock all its incredible functionality. And there's a good chance you just don't have time to become a Salesforce expert yourself. So what most organizations do is they rely on a Salesforce implementation consulting partner like Higher Echelon to help them get the very most out of their Salesforce investment. Higher Echelon is an award-winning Salesforce consultation partner who can come in, get your organization all set up in Salesforce, help you get the absolute most out of the platform. And clients are really amazed at the time and money and headaches, especially in human resources, that are saved once the power of this software is fully unlocked. If you are using any Salesforce service, you are likely only getting a fraction of the benefits if you aren't consulting with a Salesforce partner. Don't miss out. Go to higherechelon.com or get in touch with me, Rachel Breyers. Higher Echelon is the premier choice for Salesforce implementations and consulting. Like we always say in our book club episodes, if you haven't read the book, you might want to pause here and go get it through the link in our show notes or your local bookseller. This book is also available at most libraries. This show will have a, some spoilers. It really will. So if you haven't read the book, you may want to stop here. That said, this book is a biography, and we've not done a, bi a biography before on Bell Curve. For me, at least, I always like to know a little bit about the person before I start a biography. So if you're like me, just keep going with the show, and maybe this show can serve as your toe dip into the life of a fascinating and amazing woman, a high performer, just an amazing person who accomplished a lot in a short time. Uh, and we chose this book because she was such... Such an amazing performer, a person who accomplished her goals on her schedule in the way that she wanted to, and because she decided to do it. Babe was born on June 26, 1911 in Port Arthur, Texas. Just to remind you who Babe was, she was born on June 26, 1911 in Port Arthur, Texas. She was born Mildred Ella Didrikson. She was the sixth of seven children. Her mother, Hannah, and her father, Old Didrikson, were immigrants from Norway. Babe was a big talker, big talker. Her whole life, she was a big talker, but she started out that way, evidently. And she says that she got her name because she hit five home runs in a baseball game as a kid, which if you, when we get into her life and a little bit more about Babe, you think this actually could have happened. But 
we hear also talk a lot of smack and she tended towards what we call in the South, the fish story. The story gets bigger and bigger <laughs> as it's retold. It's more likely she got the name Babe from her mother, Hannah, who called her Bebe, B-E, or Baby in the Norwegian. History knows Babe for her athletic feats and her high performance, and they were nothing short of legendary in basketball, baseball, track and field, track and field, and especially in golf. But Babe was just a competitor, y'all. She competed in everything she did, including sewing. She made her own clothes and claimed to win the Texas State Fair Sewing Championships. She didn't win. She probably didn't do that, but she did win the fair in her town where she grew up in, in Beaumont, Texas. And she definitely made many of her own golfing outfits, which I thought was a pretty neat little side piece of her story. She could sing and play the harmonica, and she recorded songs on a record label. She was excellent at pocket billiards, and although she wasn't a champion, she could play the heck out of a a pool table. She could run a pool table like nobody's business. So Liz, tell us a little bit about Babe's husband. He was a colorful character. So Babe, when she was 27, married George Zaharias, whose birth name was Theodore Victorianus, which might sound a little Greek to you because it is. He was known as the crying (laughs) Greek from Cripple Creek, and he was a professional wrestler. Just like now we have the, the WWE and SmackDown and all that kind of stuff, they had very theatrical wrestling shows back in the 20s and 30s, and he was a big name and he made big money doing it. He was, she grew up pretty, pretty poor, very like in an oil town, working class family, a lot of kids. And he was able to offer her a, a pretty a life where she didn't have to worry about putting food on the table. He was known as the crying Greek from Cripple Creek because he could cry on command, which is something that in the book she talks about later, or the narrator talks about later, about how sometimes he would stand in front of the camera when he was talking about her and just like poor tears. And no, everybody knew he had that ability. So they weren't sure if he was being real or not. But he was a big guy. They talk about in the book that by the time her story ends, he weighed about 350 pounds and he was well over six feet tall. So he was a big guy, just a big personality and really pushed Babe a lot in her own career as an athlete, him being an athlete as well. He strikes me as, uh, I know she had the the manager, and I forget his name, the, the newspaper reporter that early on who managed her, but he seemed to be her really the one that managed her after the Olympics and they met and they, they really, he, he seemed to really put her out there in a way that I don't know. I just wonder if it would, the story would have been the same without him. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, it was there, there was a little story in the book about they met and got married within just a couple months and they were trying to find a time, like they were trying to find the right weekend to get married where all their family could be there or whatever. And he said, if we don't get married this weekend, we're over. <laughs> and so they just went and got married without any other family involved. So I think he was a very assertive and forceful character, just like she was. And you don't often see that where one is just so over the top and larger than life. And then they marry someone who's as equally, it seems like it's more often opposites attract. So one of right. those would be married to the very, very shy person, but not in this case. They, they both really, I think, understood PR and how to play the press and play up their relationship as this famous athletic couple and who are at least in the press all over each other all the time and just put forward this face that they were the, the perfect marriage. 
very, they very much understood showmanship. I think today they would be like influencers on social media. And <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about her early life. She early life in sports, Liz, on a roll. Keep going there. So she, she talks all, or they talk a lot in the biography about how she fought for respect from the boys from a very young age and was very naturally gifted, but she would go out and literally take punches from them just to, to win their respect. She, when, when she first started, I don't want to call it official or organized sports, but she was a hedge jumper. So she her her dad laid out a course for her and instead of hurdles, they had hedges that she could to jump over. And she carried that style of that, she, that self-taught jumping style forward all the way to the Olympics. It worked for her. She ended up winning gold in the 1932 Olympics in LA, which is pretty incredible. And she was the only track and field athlete, male or female, to win an individual Olympic medal in running, throwing, and jumping event in the, in those Olympics. That's pretty impressive. She went to those Olympics after, you know, she, she started out really doing AAU basketball and got paid a, you know, a, a salary to play semi-pro basket, women's basketball at, under these companies would sponsor basketball troops really to go around and play each other, which is Something that doesn't really exist anymore. There's still AAU basketball, but she not... was a secretary, quote yeah. for the, the casualty insurance company, right? Yeah. She... And and so she was not a professional athlete, but she was being there were there was a team paid. of secretaries, right? <laughs> there were there happened to be like seven secretaries who were also pretty good at basketball. Um, but that's what these companies did i guess to advertise yeah yeah that's what they said is that we complain sometimes now about how commercialized sports have become but from for a hundred years at least companies have been paying to for us to watch sports and see oh casualty insurance yeah just like geico does it today oh my gosh so the LA Olympics, glamorous. So the event. LA Olympics. <laughs> she, it, it was funny. I like, have, if, I, if I swear, if there's a time in history I could go back to, this just sounds so glamorous. The, the height of the Great Depression. <laughs> know, but, right? it, but Clark Gable and the silver screen and. I don't yeah. know. They're rubbing shoulders with actresses and actors. And I don't know. But you're it was right. pretty cool. So she first started, like when she first set her sights on the Olympics, she's, oh, I'll get to, this will be my chance to go abroad and you know, travel to other exotic places. And then they ended up being in LA. But she, like you mentioned, she got to meet Clark Gable and several other celebrities and be in the spotlight. And boy, did she ever love being in the spotlight. Her teammates hated her. And for good reason. Yeah. She was a trash talker's trash talker. She was the least humble athlete, particularly female athlete and she would just go up and she would get in people's minds she would talk about how i'm gonna win every competition you know and and there was a but while she was trying to qualify for the olympics she attended these qualifying events and i think it was in illinois where she competed in every event much to the dismay of the organizer who thought that women just could not handle uh, competing in more than three events i, I want to say she competed in maybe 30 something like that it's like a one-man track and field team and one she woman won. track and one per one woman track and field team she single-handedly won the competition for her entire team as a one-woman team the team that came in second place 
had 22 different athletes competing across these 30 events. So there was a really important event that I want to talk about right now that I think really characterized how Babe really wasn't like we all high performance is something we all try to attain, but not in this way. She did some things that were sometimes not good. Can you talk about the Evelyn Hall event? That was a that was something I think that we ought to know about her because this author does a good job of really bringing Babe out warts and all. Yeah, he did a really good job of of showing how flawed she was and then some growth she went through later in life. But there was one case in particular where she, I think it was the, was it the final heat in the hurdle, 80 meter hurdles, mm-hmm. something I like that, so, Yeah, um, where she and Evelyn Hall were you know, both Americans facing off against each other on the same team, on the same team and came in a, a photo finish dead heat. And Babe threw up her hands as if she had won and Evelyn crossed the finish line or at least like she had basically rope burn from the string across her throat, which would make you think that she won. The judges couldn't, they didn't know. And then the photos were inconclusive. And I, I believe the judges, the so there were two judges who were supposed to determine who was in first place and two judges who were supposed to determine who was in second place. All four judges said Evelyn Hall. Two of them said she won first place and two of them said, no, she won second place. So nobody could figure it out. But because Babe was there celebrating like she had won, she had pulled it off. She won gold medal. Convinced them. She convinced, she got awarded the medal. It was one of the two that she won in, in those Olympics. And she snaked poor Evelyn Hall out of her tie win. You I know, mean, her I tie wanna... gold medal. I want, to take a, I want to take a different view on this. I think we would all agree if in your heart you did not win, but then you do something like that, that's low integrity. Nobody wants to win that way. However, I just want to take a little tack that maybe, think about it, if she was that neck and neck, she didn't probably even know if she had won or not. I think that's interesting is the power of, of your body language, the power of confidence, mm. the power of if you slink, and it sounds like Evelyn Hall did, she slunk down and walked off as though she were the loser. She actually put up two two fingers like right. she was number two. But she she thought she might have been number two. Right. She was uncertain herself. I think there's power in believing in yourself, believe, having that confidence and communicating that through your body language, through your voice, through your stature, because people believe what you believe about yourself. If you believe you're the winner, oftentimes others will too. So again, caveat, if it's dishonest, if you're not the winner, to use that to be the winner and ice somebody out. But if it's a dead heat and you're not even sure, I don't know. I, I just think that's an interesting. That's a good point. It's a good point. I guess I'm just thinking of all the smack she talked to all her teammates. It made me think that maybe there was something else going on, but you're right. And it is high performance is often about the, how you project yourself. So, so let's talk about after the Olympics. I guess this was the era when companies, we talked a little bit about the sports teams and all their marketing and she was employed with a secret as a secretary and all that. But what was, where did all this go? Yeah. So Liz talked about how this is the era when companies made investments and sports teams as part of their marketing. So she was quote, employed as a secretary. She had been not very interested in academics. She wasn't that great of a student. She didn't graduate from high school. When she got out of the Olympics here, she was high on this victory, but where do you go from there during this time? And so she really was looking at during the depression, how can I turn sports into a lucrative profession and whether to compete 
compete as an amateur or go pro. And there were often many more opportunities to compete as an amateur, particularly when it came to women's golf, which wasn't quite on her radar, right, after the Olympics, though she Mm -hmm. had played a few rounds in L.A. at the famous Brentwood course. So the game did pique her interest, however, especially after she entered the gaudy vaudeville circuit where she found herself at one point doing things like playing in sideshow baseball games where they played while riding donkeys. Obviously, that's not what she envisioned her life to be, but she seemed to long for the spotlight, no matter how it came to her, while at the same time longing for a serious way to turn her incredible talents into a profession that was taken seriously. You know, I I think about that era with the sideshows, and I agree with you. I think I don't know. It's hard to tell, but it seems to me that might have been a a bit of a low point. It was necessary and she did like the spotlight, but I agree with you. It seems that she she had a longing to be taken seriously. And it seems to me that golf was a way to be taken seriously. And in this kind of era where she was trying to figure that out, it talks about how she sent almost all that money back to her family. So she was pursuing this athletic career. Yeah, because she loved it. She was good at it. But she also, it, it was pretty apparent she felt this responsibility to use it to take care of her family, too. I, I don't know if she gets enough credit for that. So she launches herself into, into golf. And I think she was probably the first female golf celebrity. Broke some serious ground. Give us a few details. I, I want to get into some questions about her because I don't want to, I don't want to spend all the time on just these kind of elements. But I think it's important to understand her life. So take us quickly through kind of the golf era because it's phenomenal. So she had a little bit of trouble because there was, she started playing golf and then she, I think she bought a car and she, and they inappropriately, this company inappropriately used her name, image, and likeness. And they're, oh, you're not an amateur because you were in this ad for this car. So they must have paid you. And, but she had some trouble like with that amateur versus pro. And there were so many more opportunities for people to play as amateurs, but she really, she was the, she was Tiger Woods. She was the Tiger Woods of the 1940s and 50s. She was so good. She won tournament after tournament, both in the U.S. and on the British circuit as well. 17 straight wins, something that hasn't ever been repeated. She Amazing. dominated after she turned pro in 1947. And she and her husband were founders of the LPGA, the Ladies Pro Golf Association. And she served as its president from 1952 to 1955. By the mid-1950s, she had won pretty much every single golf title that existed for women at the time. She even qualified for the U.S. Open, but the committee denied her entry, saying that the event was for men only. Annika Sorensen, I think Annika Sorensen, and there's been a few others that have played uh, in men's tournaments since then, but it was like a long period of time when like 50 years or something, 50 or 60 years when between the time that Babe did it and played against men and to when it happened again. So my goodness. She was well strong. That. She was so strong. She, she could hit off the men's tees and compete right there with them. And, but because there she was a woman, they wouldn't let her. It was crazy. I know. So Babe did not live a long life, sadly. And I think this is both one of the things that makes me, I don't know, it's tragic about her life, but it's also, it also is something that makes her her life to me so epic and how she handled the end. She had cancer 
and it was killing her. It, it, she she was ki- Babe was killing it in golf in the early 50s when she was first diagnosed with colon cancer. And she actually managed to beat it once. And amazingly, she returned. And it was, y'all, that part of the book where they, when she came back, she had colon cancer and she had to wear a colostomy bag and she had to adjust her game uh, and how nervous she was because she was walking these courses and having to play, having had her abdomen cut open and having to wear this colostomy bag. And I I find this part of Babe's life amazing because she, and I think this is a period when it all became very serious. It became extremely serious. And Rage, I do agree with you that there was a desire along the way to be taken seriously, even though I think some of the opportunities for her along the way to be a big name were were not exactly the kind of attention she wanted, but that was what was available to her. And so she took it. But this was a point in time where I think Babe said to herself, how am I going to beat cancer? How can I beat this? And the only way to really beat it is to do something different. And she all she did, and it is hard to imagine now in an era when we talk about everything and put everything on Facebook and everything is so out there, but What Babe decided to do, she believed that her cancer, part of the reason why she was not able to be, she thought she was diagnosed too late. And she really took, she thought the reason for that was her own fear of going in and talking about it. And the fact that in society at that time, you didn't even say what was called the C word, not, you wouldn't talk about cancer. Nobody wanted to discuss it and nobody, and people that caused people to get diagnosis and treatment too late. And that is, in fact, what Bay believed happened in her case and probably did happen. And because her, you know, her cancer was diagnosed late, ultimately she was not able to beat it. But along the way, during her illness, she invited reporters into her hospital room, something that was just not done. And she talked about it and she encouraged people to get treatment earlier, to recognize the symptoms. And y'all, I think, I guess in a sense, she didn't beat cancer, but in a sense she did, because there is no telling in a time when you didn't talk about cancer, you didn't talk about this disease. She, and it's hard to even imagine that would be the way it was, but it was. There there is no telling how many people went and got treatment because Babe Didrick said you should. And so I think in a way, she did beat cancer, not in her own life, but in the lives of others. And I just think we all want our lives to matter. We all want our lives to mean something. And there is no doubt that Babe Didrikson's glorious life meant something. All these athletic feats, of course, but then the way she took her celebrity and beat cancer. To me, that's just such a, such a mark of someone who's exceptional and next level. What do y'all think? I Yes, it talks in the book a lot about how while she was in the hospital for treatment, she would go over to the children's cancer wing and put on a brave face and talk about how you couldn't tell, you couldn't really tell that she was for a while, you couldn't tell that she was sick by looking at her. And so she would go and cheer on the kids who were very outwardly sick and you know, were just stuck there experiencing their childhoods in a cancer ward and just try to give them all the encouragement and love and attention that she could. She really wanted children, but they were never able to have them. And I I think you can see how she had that love for kids in, in some of that description, but then also that just that 
as she aged and matured and maybe came face to face with her own mortality talk grew to knowing that maybe I can use my fame and my platform and my presence for something really impactful and important. And she did that. She became such a public advocate and and raised a lot of money for cancer awareness. And y'all, I, I don't think I had never heard her name before I read this book, but I don't think we should understate how famous she was when she died. President Eisenhower sent a letter to her family with his condolences there. She was so famous. She was so famous. She was so famous. Mm -hmm. So I have a few questions. We talked a little bit about her early life and that I think that incident where she throws her hands up and we didn't talk a lot about this, but she gave everyone on her teams a lot of grief. She was a big talker. There's definitely a lack of humility on display in the early life, but then she evolves and you see her evolving and evolving. That competitiveness, that lack of humility early on, strength or weakness? It's tough. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. She was a jerk. She was a jerk. She was not a sympathetic character. I didn't like her very much at the beginning of this biography, but then she really grew on me. And I'm not typically one to say, well, if she was a man, nobody would have said those things about her. But look at Babe Ruth. Do you think it was particularly humble of him to go point where he was about to hit a home run? (laughs) No. No. (laughs) What do you think? He's lauded for it. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, it's interesting when you read the biographies of some of these intense, over-the-top, high performers, and often this theme, this pattern emerges. You have these extreme personalities who aren't humble, who have a total die-hard competitiveness. I think of Steve Jobs, for example. Mm-hmm. And you have to wonder, would they have gone as far as they did without whatever it was inside of them that came out at times as this kind of over-the-top hubris. My best friend from the time I was four years old all the way up through high school, she went on to be a professional athlete. She was an Olympic gold medalist. And while she was not anywhere near the extremity of Babe's personality, and I don't want to paint her in any kind of a negative way, I did have this, I was along for the ride of the making of an Olympic athlete. And I would say I can see some of these patterns in my friend. Like Babe, she was better than all of us. I played on all of her teams. She was way better than all of us. And she was better than the bo- all the boys at sports. And she knew it. <laughs> but right. you know, with Babe, you get the sense that I think for Babe, she really embodied two sides, two extreme sides of a coin. She was extremely confident, but she also doubted herself to the point of extreme anxiety, which is another thing that that you see over and over sometimes with high performers. Mm -hmm. Often the times the people who are the best at things experience the most self-doubt and anxiety. You touched on something there, Rachel, that I want to talk about, too, of pushing society forward, pushing sports forward. The week that I read this was also the week that Simone Biles landed this crazy, insane vault jump in a qualifying event. I think it was for the world championships, which is a qualifying event for the Olympics that are coming up this summer. And they didn't give her a score for it because it was too dangerous of a jump for any other female athlete to make. So They told her she wasn't allowed to submit that as her piece of the competition because Mm. nobody else can compete at that same level. Now, Simone, 
Also on her leotard that she wears in her gymnastics meets has a little like rhinestone outline of a goat, which when you call somebody the goat, the G-O-A-T greatest of all time, that's not a particularly humble thing to do, but she's the (laughs) best gymnast of all time. Well, you know, the goat goat at West Point is not the greatest of all time. It's like whoever comes in last, like it's like, (laughs) say like they make a big deal out of the goat, but it means something totally different. And we call Tom Brady the goat or Nick Saban the goat. Mm -hmm. Simone Biles is the goat. And you know what? There are going to be other gymnasts, female gymnasts who look at what she did and said, somebody accomplished that. That means maybe I can do it too. And if I push myself, I can do that. They talk about, I think the sub five minute mile was unattainable for so long. And then somebody broke it. And then as soon as one person broke it, a whole bunch of other people broke it because all of a sudden they saw, oh, this thing that everybody said wasn't attainable actually is. So maybe if somebody else can do it, I can do it too. I think one theme that I don't want to belabor, but y'all, this is the thirties, the forties, the fifties. Societal views of women have, now we've touched on it throughout the show, but, and you were just touching on it too, Liz, but these are pretty important themes. And as I think about it, I think that I think she was the Simone Biles of her events. She was the Tiger Woods of her events. And I think that it was, I think in for high performers like Babe, inevitably you're going to hit glass ceilings. And hers was societal society's views of women. And that caused her not to be accepted into, into the open. They flat out told her this golf tournament is for men. You know, I think that's probably just, I don't want to downplay any of that because it is what it is, but I, that was her, that was her, that was her thing to do. That was her fight to have. And I just really admire that she just kind of took it like, okay, come on. Okay. Let's have a fight. I just, you have this sense of, she wasn't looking for a fight. She didn't want to pick a fight, but she understood that she was going to have to fight. And I don't, I think that she had some qualities that arguably maybe weren't the best. They served her, but I think she did evolve as a person. But I think with this, I don't think she was a person that relished a fight. I, I don't have that sense. And I like that about her, but her, the things that she was good at, the things that she wanted to do, that's where she found herself. And I think she handled it with amazing grace. What do y'all think? You know, I just think how hard it must have been for those women who wanted to participate in activities and maybe weren't allowed to. I can remember being a little girl who wasn't interested in dolls. When it came time to pick a Halloween costume, I dressed up as a football player and the karate kid. And I loved sports and skateboarding and being active. I just can't imagine how stifling that must have been if that's just what you wanted to do. And it was discouraged or not allowed. The part about the Olympic Committee not letting women compete in more than three events because they may swoon and faint from the exertion. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I think it just took people like Babe, who were so overly competent, to open you know people's eyes to what women were capable of and interested in. Can you imagine if somebody had told Michael Phelps, you're only allowed to swim in three events? ridiculous how many events would she have gold medal then if if she'd been able to compete as much as she wanted to it's it's or how many times would she have outshot the boys at the the pga if she'd been allowed to the book is aptly named the magnificent life of babe didrick and zaharias and it truly was magnificent any last thoughts ladies before we close out 
Well, you know, besides making me get a serious itch to get back into some form of competitive sports, I was just so inspired that Babe dared to be different, dared to be herself in a time when she was admired on the one hand because who she was was such a phenomenon. But, you know, on the other hand, who she was was largely rejected. She experienced so much rejection. I think of how early on they put pictures of her up in girls' locker rooms with captions like, you know, don't be a muscle mall, in essence, telling girls this is what you don't want to be. But despite the ups and downs of rejection and admiration over the years, I admire she kept a sense of humor. She accepted who she was. She developed her gifts and talents. She didn't bemoan her situation or or grow bitter. And most of all, I admire that all those years, like you said, she figured out a way to make money and faithfully sent half, sometimes more to support her family back in Texas. You know, there is tragedy in how Babe died, but there is so much to learn from her in how she lived. It's been great to be with you today, as always, Kirby's. Please support our show at patreon.com at Pod, And we will keep bringing you solid, enriching content twice a month so that you are just a little closer to always being your best you. See you next time.